Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 36 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, October the 9th. First, I'll be talking to Erin Bridley, National Programs Manager at Generation Australia, on tackling the growing level of youth unemployment. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about creating better models for forecasting, for economics, for coronavirus. But now, let's talk to Erin Bridgley. Well, Erin, tell us about the work of Generation Australia. Well, Generation Australia, uh, we are a global not-for-profit and uh, the, our mission is to help support anyone, anywhere uh, into a meaningful career. So we started in 2015 and uh, launched our Australian arm in uh, last year and uh, we're in over... 13 different countries now and 100 different cities. So we're really trying to disrupt the, the approach to vocational training and the way that we support people into employment. And is this for young people or all generations or what? Well, initially we started off with a, a large focus on young people uh, and trying to tackle youth unemployment. Often when people leave school or leave university, um, securing an entry-level job 
used to be something that was just just a given. It, it wasn't necessarily expected that you have any experience for an entry-level job. But these days, it's becoming tougher and tougher, and especially in this current climate. So our initial focus was on youth. But over the last year or so, we have realized that our methodology, it works for anyone. Um, and it's especially relevant at this time with COVID and the number of people who've been displaced who, who are mid-career or later into their careers as well. Okay, okay. So what's your methodology? So we have a seven-step methodology, but I won't take you through all the steps right now. The, the three key things that I think set us apart, first would be that we're demand-led. So rather than starting with uh, what, what courses do we think we could fill up so that we can have the most number of graduates, what we actually do is do a market-wide analysis and find out where are the jobs. And we, and we spend a lot of time with employers, building up employer relationships and ensuring that we know that there are jobs there for the participants at the end of the program. The second thing is that we don't just focus on the technical skills that you would need to do that particular role, but we our focus is a bit broader than that. So we focus on behavioral skills and mindsets which comes about through a process where we map out exactly what we think are the breakdown moments that people have doing that role. So we spend time with people and employers actually in the role itself and look at what is the difference between someone who really succeeds in that role versus someone who really struggles in that role. And we design behavioral skills and mindsets that address those issues as well as providing social support and mentoring alongside of that so that we're not just training people up in a skill and then expecting them to find a job at the end of the program, but we're really supporting people all the way through until the point that they have that job. And we actually continue to support them for up to six months after they're in the role itself. Okay, okay. And now, uh, so how much of this is face-to-face? Well, that's an interesting question in, in this day and age. So we, we started out as an organisation where the, the majority of uh, our content was delivered face-to-face and we were mid-pivoting to a blended delivery model, so some face-to-face, some online, when COVID happened. We've actually pivoted to an entirely online curriculum at the moment um, with the goal eventually to, to deliver some face-to-face uh, when it is appropriate again. But all of our content is delivered online at the moment through both synchronous and asynchronous lessons. So that means both in a group, on, on, a, on a Zoom, working with an instructor, as well as some individual work that you do yourself, and then as, as well as your regular check-ins with, with your mentor. So how many would be doing this in Australia? Well, we have two programs that we're currently running. Uh, one is training people to be disability support workers, and that's focused in uh, the, the greater Sydney region and, and the, the Hunter Valley region as well. And our next cohort of that will have 20 students, and we have cohorts of that running every couple of months. And uh, we also run a junior web developer training program. We've currently got 100 students training in that program uh, with another 50 to 75 coming on board uh, in mid-October as well. 
By the end of the year, we'll have uh, around 250 graduates. We're launching a new program early next year as well. And so it's just, it's just expanding for us into any different areas that we think that we can support students and which have been shown that, that those are the, the industries and, and businesses that are going to uh, rebound the quickest after, after COVID and, and once the market starts recovering. So are you saying that disability and web development are the growth industries? Absolutely. So we've, we've done a lot of research. Our, we were actually founded by McKinsey and, and they've helped us in some market analysis that shows that, well, I mean, it's logical when you think about it really, like everyone's moving online at the moment. And so people are having to expand their digital capacity and are having to bring on new talent to, to help them make that transition. As well as that, both disability and aged care, that's not something that's, that's changed um, under, under the current circumstances. The way that is delivered may have changed a little. You have people unable to go to, say, day programs and things like that um, at the moment. But still, those people, they need support and, and they need excellent young new talent to, to help come in um, and provide that support. You say you're in many different countries. Which countries are you in? Oh, let's see if I can remember them all. <laughs> so um, we are in the US, the UK, India, Kenya, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Brazil. Oh, I'm forgetting a few. <laughs> terrible. But um, we, we're... We have the ambition to be to be a completely global organisation, and we've been very lucky to have a lot of support here in Australia in in our initial year. And we're really excited about uh, the services that we think we can deliver over the next couple of years as well. That's quite brilliant. Now, all of these countries would have very different job markets, wouldn't they? So your your yeah. research would be relevant to each market, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So we really put the demand at the center of everything that we do. We absolutely do not launch programs that we don't believe that there are there are employment um, prospects for at the end of the program. So no matter where we are, we, we conduct uh, what we call activity mapping and, and um, market research to really look at where the demands are and what are the issues that are employers that, are, that they're facing. So, you know, it might be um, retention of talent. It might be that they are finding people are coming into the entry-level role with, without enough knowledge to be able to do the role effectively. We, we take all these things into account and then we work with local partners to really help strengthen what we do. So with our current programs in Australia, uh, with our Disability Support Worker Program, we're really lucky to work with Cerebral Palsy Alliance uh, to help deliver the training there. And with our Web Developer Program, we're working with Academy XI, um, who, who are fantastic as well at providing uh, training in, in the digital uh, sphere. So working with those local partners helps us to really contextualise what we're doing and deliver something that's relevant to all cultural contexts. Now, uh, what happens if the person... Let's say you've got someone training in um, web development, but uh, psychologically they might be suited for it or they mm -hmm. might have difficulty adjusting to it. How do you deal with stuff like that? Or for that matter, someone with training with disability. How do you deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. So 
the key is that we don't accept someone onto the program if we if we don't believe that they they could be successful in the role so we have a really comprehensive selection process and that looks at a number of things so for us because they're entry, entry level roles of course skill and experience is not something that we're looking for but we are looking for things like motivation uh so is this person really going to give it their all and and work hard to get through the program and then get a job afterwards the second thing is fit for a role and so there are certain innate attributes um, that we look for that really make someone excel in that particular role with disability it's empathy, it's patience, it's an open-mindedness. With junior web development, uh, it's critical thinking skills, it's teamwork and communication. So those are the things that we're looking for throughout the selection process, as well as that motivation. The other key thing is that we are screening people based on the potential for impact. We obviously have a very um, particular number of spots available on the program that we can offer to people. So we try and look at people's backgrounds. We look at um, whether this is the right program for them. And we also look at how much potential for impact the program might have on them uh, based on whether they could find a job pretty easily themselves uh, or, or whether we are what they need to help them succeed in the role. So we, we put all of those things together and that helps us make sure that we're selecting people for the program who are really in need of it the most. Well, Erin, that's all very good. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be very interested. And uh, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Look, it's, it's really a fantastic program to be working in. Uh, we see so many absolutely wonderful people coming through our program who just need that extra bit of support and that, that, for someone to really believe in them to overcome the challenges that they're facing. Well, that's fantastic. Erin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Green. Nicholas, in 2016, you wrote an article for the Government Policy Newsletter, The Mandarin, about Treasury's forecasting, and you've been thinking of its relevance to the current COVID crisis. Can you explain that? Yeah, so in 2009, I chaired the Government 2.0 Task Force and that was looking at the internet and what was then starting to be called collaborative web and its significance for government. And, and the sort of things people were thinking about were things like Wikipedia, Facebook, Twitter, the social media that was emerging. And they were asking questions like, how much of government might we be able to crowdsource? And uh, how much might we be able to use those technologies to open up government to promote transparency? And there was a new Freedom of Information Bill uh, going through the Parliament at the time, which had a phrase that stuck with me even from all the way back then, because it talked about information held by the government as a national resource to be managed for public purposes. And the way I put this is that it was recasting freedom of information thinking, not just as civic hygiene, not just as keeping government transparent, but also as economic policy, saying that the things that governments do with information are very important for the way our economy works. And they have huge resources. Now, the most obvious resource is the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which 
generates information which is managed as a national resource. But there are all kinds of other stuff that, you know, the Department of Health would have, you know, Medicare records, all this kind of stuff. And the, one of the central points of the task force that I led was to say, how can we use this information? Obviously, we need to protect its privacy, but we sh this information should be as public as we can make it so that it is a national resource so that people can use it for their own private purposes, for instance, managing a medical clinic uh, and for public policy purposes and so on. And the relevance to Treasury of all this thinking is that if you think about what Treasury does, it gives you a whole new lens with which to think about what's a kind of core government activity and what uh, could be made a lot more open. And if you think about economic models, economic models should be open. Uh, there's nothing that, uh, so Treasury, the Reserve Bank, uh, Parliamentary Budget Office, uh, use models all the time. Uh, and we, we should, uh, there are all kinds of benefits from saying, well, let's make those models public. Uh, and, and so I, I wrote a few articles a bit later on advocating that sort of thing. So how would forecasting work in the model that you're proposing? So uh, in this case, what happens is that governments need models, forecasting models of the Australian economy, for instance, and uh, they would either build them in-house or they would fund them from outsiders. And then as part of building these, they would build them in a way we're familiar with this idea of open source software, where uh, you build software resources and then you, uh, in, in open source software, you, you distribute them to the project. You make them available to the project. And so if you've got a new part of the Linux software suite, you release it, and if it's good enough, it'll be absorbed into the Linux uh, or the Chrome browser or any other part of the or, or the Android operating system any, or any other part of the open source operating world. So governments would be kind of ringmasters here, and they would help create these models. They would then parameterize them, which is to say put the right numbers in that they think are the right estimates. So, for instance, you, a number, a parameter might tell you how much employment might grow if wages fell or employment might rise if wages fell uh, and so on. And then anyone can work on this model. Anyone can propose alternatives to this model. The Treasury goes on doing what it's doing, which is parameterizing running the model, uh, advising government with the model, but anyone else can see exactly what they've done. Uh, they can vary what they've done. We can debate who's right, who's wrong. They can propose improvements to the model and so on. So that's essentially the sort of model I'm talking about. So how would this democratisation of forecasting change the government's role? A, a government officials would no longer have a monopoly on the model. What would happen is that just as we have debate today about treasury forecasts saying one thing and then the mark, you know, some market forecaster will come out and say, well, we think it'll be slightly different. That, that sort of debate about what you think would happen, I think at a more constructive level, which is 
is this parameter right? Is that parameter right? Is this a plausible way to close the model? In other words, is this a plausible set of assumptions to make to try and make sure that um, the model generates a result? Now, now a lot of that debate isn't going to happen in the daily press. It's going to be in expert, uh, in, in more expert forums. But you get the same kind of diversity, but you get much more focus on actually the quality of analysis uh, and much more capability to, to improve that, that quality of analysis. So, I mean, how would that approach work in another area where models have been important? Uh, the epidemiological model, where we're now seeing where government advisors claim to be basing their advice. So, again, here, we, there's much to a lot of these models now are external models and what happens is that uh, governments ask external modelers to model certain things for them that this was something which generated quite a lot of uh, publicity recently with Daniel Andrews talking about uh, his plan to to gradually lift the lockdown in Victoria and he's quoted lots of modeling now I haven't looked at the material closely, but very often uh, the modeling that people are relying on is not transparent. And if it is transparent, it's not open source. Uh, what I mean by that is that nobody can just go into the model and make alternative assumptions and run it in a different way. So there's, there was some famous modeling. I think the man's name was Ferguson in the UK who predicted that there were 500 that, that there might be 500,000 deaths from COVID in the UK. And this was very controversial. And subsequently, part of the model or the, or the model, the whole model was released. And computer programmers were incredibly critical of the way that this model had basically been hacked together over years and years. And they, they argued that this was just completely unsound IT, which ran, a, which gave you different answer every time it ran. And so the model's solution to that was to run it lots of times and take various kinds of averages and so on. Now, a lot of that really should be happening out in the open as a matter of course. And if it did, we, we would have much better models and we would have a much higher quality discussion about the way in which those models should re relate to the, the kind of policy actions we take. So what you're proposing is something that would create not only better models, but more transparent models. Uh, absolutely. And the two things are closely related. If you, if uh, uh, science isn't science, if it's not transparent, that's, that's one of the the building blocks of science. And it's one of the, if you like, political tools of government uh, to stay closed. And there are, there are plenty of things that need to be closed in governments. I'm not, a, I'm not arguing for open slather on transparency, but if we want high quality deliberation, we have to find ways of opening up that deliberation to transparency, to critique, uh, and to gradual improvement. Well, those words would be important for the modelling being put up for the lockdowns and the restrictions. 
And Nicholas Grin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, with Joe Biden's lead widening in the polls and President Donald Trump's campaign sidelined by the virus, investment strategists now say there's less of a chance for a contested election. A clear-cut Democrat victory could avoid a long and messy legal battle and provide certainty to markets that have been nervous about election risks, according to strategists from Citigroup to J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. At the same time, there's still no shortage of debate over whether Democratic or Republican policies would be better for investors. While some pundits say the former would raise taxes and tighten regulations in a blow to corporate profits, others point out that a Democratic sweep could boost government and consumer spending to add a fresh leg to the risk cycle. All told, between the disruption wrought by the pandemic and a volatile sitting president, a humdrum transfer of power is seen as providing investor solace. And Australia's trade balance surplus has fallen to $2.64 billion in August from $4.65 billion in July, well below the $5.05 billion surplus economists have been forecasting. Exports for the month fell 4% to $32.6 billion, while imports rose 2% to $30 billion. Economists have been forecasting exports would fall by 2% and imports would fall by 5%. And ANZ Australian job ads rose 7.8% in September, following an upwardly revised 2.6% in August. Job ads were still down 21% since February, though. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept its rates on hold following its October meeting. The RBA's cash rate target remains 0.25%, and its yield target on the three-year bond also remains at 0.25%. However, economists are tipping a Melbourne Cup rate cut next month, with RBA Governor Philip Lowe declaring that the RBA continues to consider how additional monetary easing could support jobs as the economy opens up further. And billions of dollars in fast-track tax cuts and younger worker wage subsidies underlying the federal government's budget recovery pitch, as Australia's recession sends debt and deficits to record levels. The budget assumes the recession will be over by next year. However, it will do little for unemployment. The official unemployment rate is now forecast to peak at 8% in the December quarter. It's expected to stay above 6% until mid-2023. Debt and deficits are set to hit record highs as the coronavirus savages the economy. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's coronavirus-delayed budget includes $50 billion to bring forward tax cuts and $4 billion in subsidies for businesses to hire unemployed workers aged between 16 and 35. Almost $50 billion in tax relief for businesses and low- and middle-income earners is at the heart of $98 billion in new measures designed to return the economy to health and create 950,000 jobs over the next four years. Making good on the Prime Minister's pledge for a business-led recovery, Tuesday's federal budget contained an investment allowance which, at a cost of $26.7 billion in just over two years, will enable almost every company in Australia to immediately write off in full any eligible depreciable asset with no limit on value. The focus of the budget is getting those who lost their jobs to COVID-19 back to work as Australia faces its biggest economic challenge since the Great Depression. Cash payments worth $500 aimed at stimulating the struggling economy will go to seniors, carers and disability support recipients, costing $2.6 billion, and an extra $23,000 in home aged care packages will be offered, costing $1.6 billion. The economic devastation sparked by coronavirus will see budget deficits continuing for at least another decade. This financial year, the deficit is forecast to pass $213 billion. Gone is the government's pre-virus pledge to get the budget back to surplus and pay off the nation's debt within a decade. 
Now the government forecasts gross debt will peak at $1.1 trillion, the equivalent of 44% of gross domestic product in 2024. A so-called JobMaker hiring credit will be paid for a year to businesses who hire an unemployed worker aged 16 to 35 from the JobSeeker program. Unemployed workers in the, in the 45 to 64 year old bracket will get nothing. The rate will be $200 a week for people under 30 and $100 a week for people between 30 and 35 and they must work at least 20 hours a week. The budget forecasts that will support 450,000 jobs and is eligible for all businesses except the major banks. The next round of tax cuts, which are being brought forward two years ahead of schedule, will be retrospective to July, but people will have to wait until the end of the financial year to recoup the extra tax they have paid since the start of the financial year. The budget expects all domestic borders, except for WAs, will reopen by the end of the year. It expects WAs to reopen in April, shortly after the state election of the year. A return of international students and permanent migration isn't forecast to happen until late next year, with international travel expected to remain low through the latter part of 2021. If there is a vaccine before July next year, the budget expects economic activity could increase $34 billion. But if there's no vaccine and further outbreaks occur, forecasted economic activity will be $55 billion lower over the next two years. The JobKeeper wage subsidy program is still slated to end in March next year, signalling a major end to direct government economic assistance ramped up during the height of the pandemic. The government will also cut placement on its humanitarian program, saving almost a billion dollars in coming years. The budget also includes $6.4 billion in funding the government has allocated but is yet to announce. In his budget lock-up news conference, Mr Frydenberg echoed Treasury's concern about how the COVID-19 pandemic will play out. The budget papers say... Its effects on communities and the economy are highly uncertain. There are large upside and downside risks associated with the forecasts. The upside presumes a rollout of a vaccine from July, speeding a return of more business as usual, resulting in a $32 billion increase in activity in the first half of the following year. The downside presumes outbreaks of the infection leading to the re-imposition of lockdowns and a contraction similar to the first wave, costing the economy $55 billion. And the Queensland Government will invest $200 billion in the relaunched Virgin Australia under new owner Bain Capital for a 10% stake aimed at keeping the airline's headquarters in Brisbane. Virgin fell into voluntary administration under the strain of the COVID-19 pandemic in April. The prospect of the airline moving interstate to reduce overheads post-relaunch sparked a bidding war with New South Wales and Victoria, which were both keen to host the airline at their major airports. Queensland laid its cards on the table in May, after previously offering a similar lifeline that was conditional on federal government support to try and stop Virgin entering administration in the first place and won over Bain. And Richard Branson's Virgin Group is said to take about a 5% stake in Virgin Australia as part of a new agreement with incoming owner Bain Capital. It's understood Bain and Virgin Group are in late-stage talks to finalise a British tycoon's investment, which sources said was on track to be signed when Bain formally takes Australian Airlines keys at the end of this month. Virgin Group's equity stake would ensure Branson's world-famous company continued to have a presence in Australia's skies about 20 years after it set up what was discount carrier Virgin Blue and give new owner Bain Capital an ongoing relationship with the group whose name is emblazoned on its aircraft and whose culture is still synonymous with the number two Australian carrier. Virgin Group is expected to tip in fresh funds for the stake, although the size of the equity cheque is not known. The shareholding is part of a wider deal that also includes Bain's ongoing use of Virgin's name and branding. Virgin Australia has historically paid an annual fee to Virgin Group for use of the trademarks. 
Should Virgin Group's investment complete with a wider deal as expected at the end of this month, it would mark a full circle situation for Branson's company. And Brisbane-based vaccine technology company Vaxis has scored $30.2 million, that's US $21.7 million, in funding from a US government biomedical research body to advance its needle-free vaccine technology in preparation for future pandemics. The fresh funding injection from the US Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority will support its three clinical studies and a large phase one human clinicals trial of its micro-patch technology using an influence of vaccine. Vax's micro-patch technology will change the way vaccines are administered. The company, which was spun out of the University of Queensland in 2011, has created technology that allows vaccines to be administered via a one-square-centimetre patch with 5,000 tiny projections invisible to the naked eye. These projections are coated in a dry version of the vaccine, rather than a liquid, and prick the skin when applied. Early Vaxis research suggests this method causes a far greater immunological response to the vaccine, thanks to the high proportion of immune cells found in the skin. This means a substantially smaller dose would be required for immunity. Its early studies have shown comparable immune responses with a sixth of the vaccine dose. And one of the nation's most iconic fruit and vegetable processes, the century-old SPC, is making its first move into the frozen prepared meal category. SPC Ardmona has taken a majority equity stake in Australian manufacturer of frozen ready meals and finger foods, the Cuisine Company, as the iconic fruit and vegetable processor continues its transition into a global agribusiness. SPC now under the ownership of Shepparton Partners Collective, who bought the ailing business from Coca-Cola Amatil, will grow its health and aged care food offerings by adding the Emu Plains, New South Wales Company's brands and 100 staff members. Cuisine makes its The Good Meal Company, The Gluten-Free Meal Company and Simply Special brands for supermarket chains, health services, Meals on Wheels and other food service clients. And a decision by Qantas to stand down hundreds of aircraft engineers without pay during the COVID-19 pandemic has been vindicated by the federal court. Qantas claimed all other cost savings measures have been implemented before the stand downs. The Engineers Association said the decision to stop work was in Qantas's control. The court ruled the work stoppage was the direct result of government restrictions on flying. About 450 Qantas and Jetstar maintenance engineers were among the two-thirds of the workforce benched for a month from late March as passenger numbers declined. In a case being closely watched for its likely ramifications outside aviation, Qantas sought a declaration from the court that the stoppage of work was for reasons it could not be held reasonably responsible for. But the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association argued a lack of customers, no matter how stark, should not be considered a stoppage of work under the workers' agreement. Justice Geoffrey Flick ruled in the airline's favour and found the stoppage of work was due to the substantial stoppage of domestic and international passenger flights between March 29 and April 22. This dramatic downturn was not the result of any conduct of the airlines, the court found. And Australian businessman James Packer has told the independent inquiry into Crown Casinos that his bipolar disorder has impacted his behaviour in the past. James Packer faced the inquiry into the Crown Sydney licence. He told the inquiry that it was correct he was on medication which impairs his memory. Mr Packer resigned from Crown Resorts in 2018, citing mental health issues. Mr Packer appeared for his first day of the questioning where he revealed issues caused by his mental health state. The hearing 
was cause a legal argument over the release of emails sent by Mr Packer in 2015, with his lawyers arguing they should be kept confidential. The inquiry has already heard testimony from senior Crown executives and directors, and Supreme Court Judge Patricia Bergen has criticised the state of the company's anti-money laundering systems. Last month, she said the lack of transparency at Crown exposed by the probe was a debacle, and she called some of the evidence extraordinarily troubling. But it resumed after more than half an hour to reveal Mr Packer sent threatening emails to a businessman, referred to as Mr X, to protect his identity for the purposes of the inquiry. He admitted his behaviour was shameful and disgraceful after he had sent allegedly threatening emails to Mr X in 2015, at a time when he'd been canvassing to privatise the company, although the reason behind the emails has not yet been made public. Mr Packer said at the time he was being treated for bipolar disorder. And online sales with COVID-19 has seen baby goods retailer Baby Bunting heading for a bumper December half result after achieving 17% same-store sales growth and higher gross margin in the 14 weeks to October 2. Excluding stores in metropolitan Melbourne, same-store sales had risen 28.5% in the year to date, Baby Bunting said in a trading update before its virtual annual meeting. 17% same-store sales growth compared with comparable store sales growth of just 3.1% in the same period last year. The sales growth was fuelled by online demand. Online sales, including click and collect, soared 126% in the first quarter. Excluding Victoria, online sales rose 92% and click and collect sales surged 233%. While most discretionary retails in Melbourne remain closed under stage 4 COVID lockdown rules, Baby Bunting's Melbourne stores and its distribution centre at Dandenong South have remained open. However, sales in Melbourne have moderated. And Insurance Australia Group will pay $138 million to settle a class action over the sale of add-on motor insurance through car and motorcycle dealers. The action, brought against insurer by law firm Johnson, Winter and Slattery, related to insurance products that motor dealers sold to customers as add-ons when buying a car or motorcycle. The sales in question took place between 2008 and 2017, and the action was first made public in April 2019. IAG has stopped selling add-on insurance through motor dealers in 2018. The sale of often unnecessary insurance products through car dealers was a major focus of the Hain Royal Commission's insurance hearing in 2018, and the class action closely followed Commissioner Kenneth Haynes' final report. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Longtail UX co-CEO Andreas Zumla, and we'll be talking about the Longtail startup, which has an industry-first online marketing solution with its patented technology delivering a perfect match for every keyword searched by potential customers. As well as boosting traffic and conversions, the technology also ensures SEO investments are 100% measurable, providing detailed analytics that demonstrate results down to the individual keyword level. An economist, Saul Leslake, will give his assessment about the budget. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBellZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 